We're in John chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 15. So let's get our Bibles out, phone Bibles, paper Bibles, screen Bibles, whatever you got. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 that we're going to read today, within that text lies one of the most famous miracles in the whole Bible. It's one of the most widely known signs that Jesus performed during his time on the earth. Matter of fact, aside from something like his resurrection, this is the only sign that Jesus performed that's recorded in all four Gospels. It is the feeding of the 5,000. How many of you have heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000 before? Okay, anybody who's been in church for any length of time has read this scripture or they've heard this sermon or they've been in this Sunday school lesson Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to say, been there, read that, heard that, get out the phone, what's the Wi-Fi password, check your Facebook or your Wordle or your Hurdle or your Nerdle or whatever <laughs> dull you're on. Call me when the sermon's over. Okay, we're not doing that. I probably even missed some, but that's the age we're in. I want you to stick with it this morning. And I don't want you to stick with it just because, oh, I've got some radical, new, never before heard interpretation of the feeding of the 5,000. No, I want you to stick with it this morning because, friends, the Word of God is living and active. Do you believe that today? The Word of God is sharper than any two edged sword. The Word of God does things, it accomplishes things. We all good on that point? So let's get into the word. What we're going to do today, we're going to carve this up into four sections, four acts, if you will, like you were at a Shakespearean play of some kind. The first act is the background. It's the backstory. It's establishing the context of what's going on here. So let's read John 6, verses 1 through 4, and we'll talk about some things in here. It says, after this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now the first thing we see in here, it says after this. The this that's in reference there are of course the events of John chapter 5, which we talked about the last two or three weeks. And we might read this like, oh it happened immediately after this. But a lot of scholars actually believe that the events of John cha chapter 6 took place about five or six months after the events of John chapter 5. So Jesus did some stuff in John 5, then he did some other stuff for a while that isn't written down, and now he's here doing this. It says, after this, he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. If you go to the next slide, please, there is a hard-to-read map, but this is going to tell us what we need to know. I'm going to see if I can reach this far. I should have like a pointer or a stick. Okay, up, up that way, way past where my finger is, next to that yellowish area, that's the Sea of Galilee, that, that spot of water there. And uh, it's generously called a sea. It's really more like a big lake. But I learned something actually pretty cool about the Sea of Galilee within the last couple of weeks. It is the lowest, as in below sea level, it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world 
pretty cool. It's the second lowest lake in the world, period, next only to the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea is salt water. This is fresh water. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's a long way down. Long way down. Uh, here it has two names. Yeah, it's a really long way down. It has two names. It's, if you go back to the previous slide, if you don't mind, just for a second. It has two names. It's called the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias. The reason why is because later in the first century AD, there was a town along the shore of this Sea of Galilee called Tiberias, and it was growing, booming, bustling. And it was getting kind of a reputation in that region, so much so that people started to call the body of water next to it by the name of the town. It's Tiberias. And John was writing this in the late first century AD. So he's just appealing to his audience. He's saying, hey, in my day, we called it the Sea of Galilee. You guys call it the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same thing. If you could then go back to the map for me, we're jumping all around. I wanted to point out one more thing on here. We've had this conversation a few times. Can you read what it says right there? Somebody's been to the optometrist lately. You can read that. That's Jerusalem. And Galilee's way up there, the Sea of Galilee. I just wanted to point out that what we're going to read today is taking place away from Jerusalem, which we've established is the epicenter of the Jewish faith and religion, religion and culture and customs. That's where the prominent religious leaders would have been stationed. And God is moving in this chapter away from all of that. He's out kind of in the nowhereville. So I think that should about do it for our geography. That wasn't so bad, non-maps people, was it? You survived. The only difference here where he's away from Jerusalem is that Jesus is starting to develop a pretty large following. If you go back to the text there on the previous slide, I'm done now, I promise. It says in verse two, a large crowd was following him. And it's important for us to note why the crowd was following him. You'll see in this text, it doesn't say anything there about, oh, they believed that he was the Christ. They believed he was the Messiah, the son of God. It doesn't say anything about things like confession of sin and repentance. It doesn't say anything about salvation and faith. It doesn't talk about that. It says they were following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. It's important for us to note. They heard that there was this guy, Jesus, creating kind of a stir in the area, and they wanted to go see it for themselves. There was kind of a spectacle to behold. Here's what I would say to that, first of all. Some of you guys, even here in the room this morning, you're not Christians yet, and you are just kind of new to this, or you're checking this Jesus thing out. What it, what's it all about? I'm not really going to dive in with both feet yet. Here's what I would say to you. First of all, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're really honored that you are involving us in your journey to figure out what this Jesus stuff is all about. And I want to just kind of honor you in that. Whatever brought you to this point of curiosity and seeking and wondering about Jesus, it may not have been a good circumstance that led you there, but it's a good thing that you're there in that place. And I would encourage you, if that's you, do your homework, do your research, study, read, ask questions. You can ask us questions. Christians who are in the room, would you allow someone who was curious about Jesus to ask you a question about, about your story? Would you let them do that? Good. That's like part of the reason why we're here. So that's great. I want to honor you in that. But here's what I would say, and I will say this to all of us. God has in mind for each of us 
more than just remaining at that kind of curiosity stage forever. Like again, that's, that's a phase, that's a period. You kind of have to go through that, all of us do. But God doesn't want us to just stay there. He's got a whole life for us. And that's part of what's going on here in this text. These guys, this crowd in John 6, 2, they're sort of like fans of Jesus. They're like the Jesus fan club, okay? And you know how it works about fans, maybe a fan of a sports team or something? A fan shows up when there's a game going on. A super fan might show up when there's not, but the average fan, when there's a game happening, they're there. A fan shows up when there's a spectacle to behold. A fan shows up when there's some sort of immediate benefit they perceive that they could draw out of that thing. Oh, I'll go to the Sea Dogs game tonight because I want to be entertained or blow off some steam. It'll be fun, whatever. There's nothing wrong with any of that, by the way. But I would say this to you. Jesus is not looking for fans. Jesus is looking for followers. And there's a big difference between the two because you see a fan, the moment things seem inconvenient. Gone. As soon as the spectacle is over, gone. That's why if you drove by Harbor Station on the night of a Sea Dogs game, I must want to go to a Sea Dogs game. Anyway, you drive by there at 11.30 at night when the game's over, it's not very busy compared to 8.30 when you can't find a parking spot. As soon as a fan perceives that they're not drawing that immediate benefit out of that thing anymore, they're gone. A follower is different. A follower continues on even when things are difficult, even when things are inconvenient, even when things maybe don't make sense. And I will tell you this, you guys know this already, sometimes it will seem inconvenient for you to follow Jesus. Seem, it will seem inconvenient. Sometimes it might be hard like a Toronto fan. (laughs) Somebody usher that guy out of here. Actually, he is the usher today. Okay, you can stay. Oh, we were all just ministered to there. That was wonderful. Yeah, sometimes it is gonna be difficult, but a follower of Jesus is gonna continue on through that. You just have to make note of that in this text. And don't answer this out loud, but like, I think part of the reason that's in there is for us to be able to check ourselves. Hey, in my life right now, in this season I'm in, with these circumstances I find myself in, am I following Jesus? Am I loving, serving, obeying, worshiping, abiding in Jesus, or am I more in the fan camp right now? I'll show up when there's something going on, but not, you know, if I have a prayer request or there's like an Easter breakfast or something. By the way, this place smelled like sausage all week. It was glorious. You guys get the point. Jesus is not calling us to be fans, but followers. Now it goes on in verse four to say the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Somebody say Passover. The Passover is a monumental, huge holiday on the Jewish calendar. And its origins are all the way back near the beginning of the Old Testament. And the book of Exodus starts in Exodus chapter 12. You can go read about that. You've heard the story, the angel of death and the doorposts and the passing over and all that. The origins, though, of this Passover is that God's people were enslaved in Egypt, oppressed in Egypt under the hand of the Egyptians, and God promised he was going to get them out. He was going to rescue them, deliver them. And that's what he did. 
And that's why uh, it carried on from there as, as a big tradition in the Jewish faith. Now, one of the hallmarks of the Passover festival is the feast of unleavened what? Bread. Bread. That had its origins in the very first Passover in Exodus 12. Essentially, God said, I'm going to get you guys out of here so fast, you're not even going to have time to let your bread rise like normal. It's going to be unleavened bread. God moved quickly, swiftly, in haste. And that got passed down. Jesus' audience was well aware what time of year it was. It's Passover time. You don't just forget Passover's coming. And here Jesus inserts himself into the middle of this time. And he does something really deeply symbolic. In this account... Jesus is going to perform a miracle, and that miracle involves bread. Later in John chapter 6, I think it's verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. That's very on purpose, and the timing is very intentional here. What Jesus is doing is that he's showing us that life and faith and salvation is about more than just religious observance. There's nothing wrong with the Passover. There's nothing wrong with some of the religious observances that we have. Like we celebrated Easter last week. That was fun. We have a lot of them on the calendar. But your life, your faith is supposed to be about more than just there. I did Easter. I did the Passover. Check, check, check off the box. It's about more than that. The goal, let me say it this way. The goal is not for us to simply adhere to some religious system. The goal is for us to know Jesus and walk with Jesus and love and serve and abide in Jesus, right? Amen, good. So in all of this, this first bit of text, you have to clearly see that Jesus is positioning himself as a central figure. Jesus is calling us to center our lives on him. We're not supposed to be fans of Jesus only, keeping him at arm's length on the sideline. We're not supposed to just go through the religious motions. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is central. Somebody say he's central. File that away in your mind because that's really the theme of the whole rest of this text as we go through it. Jesus is central. Don't answer this out loud, but do you see him as central in your life today? Do I see him as central in my life today? Let's move on to the next act. The second act in this account is the test. Dun, dun, dun. Verses five through nine, let's read those together. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them to each get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I'm sorry, I have to let you in on a stream of consciousness the bread and the fish, that's like about the worst meal we could have in my house because Lori has celiac and can't eat bread and she like hates fish very much. So shout out to you, love you, we'll move on from that. I just thought of that all week and I was busting to share that with you for no reason at all. Okay, so first verse up there, verse five, even though we've established this crowd of people following Jesus, they're not really true followers per se. They don't really get the whole picture. They're just kind of the fan club. Even so, Jesus loves them. 
He cares for them. He wants to show compassion on them. He wants to meet them where they're at. They have a need. They're hungry. How many of you know sometimes that's a big need? You're hungry. You got to eat something. And he wants to reveal himself to them and show them who he really is. And so he asked Philip, what are we going to do about getting something to eat for these guys? And it says very explicitly in verse 6, he said this to test him. So right there, you need to know something. Sometimes God tests us. God will never do things like tempt you, it says in the scriptures, but he tests us. And we don't like tests very much, do we? Sometimes God will put something in your life or allow something to be put into your life to test you. And we don't usually like it because we're sort of path of least resistance people, aren't we? Like, if a test makes me uncomfortable, I'm going to avoid that at all costs. And we tend to get a little worked up. I can remember years ago when I was in university, uh, Lori and I were going to write an exam one day. And the way they did it, at least then, was everybody crowded into the big gym and all wrote their different exams in there. And we were waiting in the hallway to go write this exam. And it's packed full of people. And down the hall, we heard this noise. Great big thud. And so, of course, everybody looks, like hundreds of people in there. And a girl had literally passed out unconscious on the floor. I don't know this for sure, but my assumption was she was standing there getting anxious and worked up and worried about her test and freaking out about her test. And then she got herself into such a tizzy that she passed out. That's my assumption. And she hit the floor hard. I, to this day, you can attest to this, it was literally like someone took a stack of books and dropped it on a hard floor. It was wild. We don't like tests very much. But I wonder, as Christians, if we kind of look at tests the wrong way sometimes. We just instinctively say they're bad no matter what. There's nothing good about it. Here's what God says. In James chapter 1, verse 3, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness being stability, like you're rock solid, built on a foundation. It says in Romans chapter 5 that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Do those sound like things you guys would want in your life? Do you want steadfastness in your life as a believer? Do you want your character to be developed? Do you want more endurance in your life? Somebody talked about the IV bags of coffee earlier. Like I would say, yes, we need endurance. Do you want hope to pulse through your veins as a Christian? Well, what God is saying that sometimes those things are only produced in us through the test. It's not about you go around the test you have to go right through the test. You see, because sometimes when we're comfortable, when there is no test, we're not really stretched. We'll kind of just stay as we are, start to drift. And how many of you guys know you don't really drift closer to the Lord? When you drift, you tend to get further from the Lord. That's part of the reason the test is there. It's not to harm you. It's not to ruin you. It's to grow you. I just thought of this right now. I am not qualified to make this statement, but... Muscle. Do you know how muscle grows? I, I don't, apparently, but it grows through tearing. 
It goes, it's when you strain, when you work it. That's the same way with our faith. So the test in your life, let's just be very honest. Even here in the room, some of you guys are going through tests right now. It could be a really severe test. It could be a little test. It could be a medium test. doesn't matter. They're tests. They're trials. You could be handling the test well. You could be handling the test, eh. You could be handling the test poorly. But we all go through tests. And if you're not in a period of testing right now, you probably have been recently. And I hate to burst your bubble. You probably will again before too long. That's the way that it works. And God has not put or allowed that test in your life to ruin you or to make you miserable. He's done it so that you can be stronger. He's done it so that you can be more like Jesus. He's done it so that you can trust in him more. Those are good things, friends. It really all comes down to how we respond to the test. If it's gonna produce something good in us, it's gonna happen because we've responded the right way and God has been gracious to us in that. And we get a little bit of a taste of this in this text. Verse Seven, Jesus said this to test Philip. Philip doesn't really pass the test. You can almost hear the panic in his voice. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That word denarii, you guys have probably heard this. That's the plural of denarius. A denarius was about one day's wage for a laborer in those days. So 200 denarii is 200 days wage. That's about eight months of work. You could go out to your job for eight months and take all the money you earn and it still wouldn't be enough to even give a little bit to these people. He didn't pass the test. There's no mention in here anywhere of, Lord, I don't really know how this is gonna work, but I trust you. You're here, what are you gonna do? No, he mostly just freaks out. How many of you, you've been down that road. The test comes and your first instinct is to not trust the Lord, it's to just freak out. Can we just be honest? I've been there. Full-length mirror should be here telling me that I've been there. And I would just say two things about that. Listen, number one, it's way better for us, and I'm not trying to just make some pad statement that's, like, this takes work, but it's better for us to develop an instinct of trusting Jesus first rather than freaking out first. And I'll just say it simply this way. How many of you know that freaking out really accomplishes nothing? Like, really? We put ourselves through so much, not even just the situation. Like we add things to the severity of the situation because we're freaking out. We make it worse and it doesn't do any good for us at all. Jesus even said, what does worry do for you? Can it add a single hour to your life? No, it cannot. So if we can trust the Lord enough in our test to say, Lord, I don't know what is going on, but I trust you. I will not freak out. I trust in you. We're way better off that way. You might still go through a rough patch, but we don't have to like add the severity to it like we sometimes do. The second thing I would say is this. Jesus has grace for us when we don't pass the test. That's very good news for this guy right here. It's not like, I mean, you can see it here. Philip freaks out. He doesn't trust. And what Jesus doesn't say is, You failed the test, Philip. Allow me to show you the way out. You're done. You're out of here. See you later. He didn't say that. And guess what? He doesn't say that to you and I either. Jesus allows Philip to stay and to watch and to see and to grow. Jesus does that with us too. So if you have failed this test or you're currently failing this test, God has grace for you. So you can turn that freaking out and that doubting 
right around and say, Lord, look, I know I haven't handled this well, but I'm here now. I trust you. Please help. And God will meet you in that because he's good. Amen. God is good today. Good. Verse nine comes along and there's a different participant in the test. Andrew. I guess it's interesting. Jesus didn't directly say it to test Andrew. Andrew must really want to take the test. He's weird. I don't know. No, he comes in and he does a little bit better. He starts out really well. He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. He looks around and says, I don't know. Like, there's a really big need, but we've got this. Starts out well. Till that very last bit of the sentence. But what are they for so many? He was that close to getting an A. And that's something that we do too. Let's not be hard on Andrew. Sometimes the test comes our way and we go, oh my word, okay, Lord, I wanna trust you. Um, But I'm looking around at the inventory of what I have and what I know in my life and uh, it's just not enough, so forget about it. And we just do nothing. I've been there. Soon as an obstacle comes, soon as the trial begins, that I uh, can't do anything. And that just freezes us into inaction. That just throws us into the ditch of, I'm not really having my faith and my trust in Jesus. And all the time that we do that, we just say, no, can't do anything. Nothing can be done about this. Do you know what we're forgetting? We're forgetting that we belong to the Lord of hosts and that he will never leave or forsake us and that our God is able to do all things and that he causes all things to work for our good. We just forget about the Lord and his promises. We just call into question the fact that he's able to do anything. Yes, I'm talking about your trial, your test that you're in right now. Andrew started out so well. Lord, there's a huge need. Maybe you have a huge need in your life. And there's a boy here who has five loaves of bread and two fish. I don't know how you're going to use this, Lord. I I literally don't see a way, but I'm going to trust in you. Because Jesus looks at that very same offering, that very same solution of five barley loaves and two fish, and he says, yep, that'll do. That'll work. And that's just God. That's how God is in our lives. Sometimes it's that place of weakness that he wants to bring you to so that you can finally empty yourself of yourself so that you'll trust him more and more. You might remember the scripture that says that his power is made perfect in our weakness, right? Sometimes what we really need and what's best for us is to come to the end of ourselves and to come to the end of our pride and come to the end of our self-perceived control and self-sufficiency and say, Lord, look, I got nothing. I got, here's what I got. It's not much, please help. And that's the moment where Jesus wants to step in. Because you know what? When we're in that point, he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. Because it's not our own resources, our own cleverness that's worked it out. It's his power. It's his faithfulness. So that's what's happening here in this text. Here's the point of this section about the test. We all get tested. We all go through trials. The question is not, am I test or trial free? The question is, how am I going to respond to the test that I'm in? You can respond by freaking out or doubting, or you can respond by trusting. The choice is literally yours. The ball is in our court. And that test will produce good things in you, says the Lord, if we will trust him in it. Still good so far? Good. 
Let's move on to the third act. We've had the background. We've had the test. Here comes the miracle. Somebody say miracle. Try again. Somebody say miracle. Thank you. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So what I would point out to you here in the first verse, verse 10, it's not as though, oh, there's a big need, there's a big test happening right now, but luckily, why luckily, we're in a large banquet hall with all kinds of food prepared. Whew, that would have been close. They're literally in a field on the side of a hill with some grass on it, okay? This is a nothing place. And this need was monstrous. It wasn't like, I gotta feed a few people here. It says there were about 5,000 in number. Now, you've probably heard this before. The way they used to count crowds back in this day, rightly or wrongly, is that they would count the men that were there. In fact, another one of the gospels, I forget which one it is, said there were 5,000 men besides the women and children. There were women and children there. We don't know how many, but it could be upwards of, we're talking 7, 8, 10, 15, 20,000 people. Kind of like sounds like a Rolling Stones concert on Magnetic Hill or something, eh? And Jesus moves. Jesus performs a miracle. This small, measly amount of food turns into not just a little taste for everybody. That would have been cool enough, right? Hey, we took this little lunch and everybody got to have a little bite. That was cool. No, there's more than enough. They gather up leftovers. There's 12 baskets, kind of one for each disciple, right? They couldn't even take it all in. That's the power of God. God is able to do more than we can understand or even imagine or even think or ask. That is our God. Do you believe that today? And what I don't want to do here is give some secret formula that guarantees a miracle in your life, right? You have a need, you're in a test, you need God to move, you need a miracle in your life, just like get out your pen and write down the following three steps and it'll be guaranteed to happen. It's not how it works. You see, miracles sometimes are unique. All miracles are uncommon. That's kind of the definition of them. So we can't just take out, you know, that magic formula, that secret sauce, that magic bullet. It doesn't work that way. But I want to point out one detail that's in that text that might give us a little bit of something to chew on with regard to this. We don't know very much at all about how Jesus did this miracle, except for the fact, it says in verse 11, when he had given thanks. He prayed in thanksgiving. And the miracle took place after that. Again, we're not guaranteeing anybody any miracle in here. But you have to see that those things are connected. And you have to see that this theme of praying in thanks is all through the scriptures. 
Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4.2 tells us to be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. It's all through there. And that kind of heart, that kind of attitude, that kind of approach to God is connected here with this miracle. Here's why this is so profound and powerful in our lives. When you take on the posture of a prayer with thanksgiving, two things happen in your life. Number one, God is honored. When you pray in thanksgiving, what you're doing is you're thanking God. You're honoring God. You're praising God. You're acknowledging him as the source of all the good things that you have. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, friends. And that's honoring to him. That's gonna help prevent you from being, thinking, oh, it's my self-sufficiency or my salary or my cleverness or my this or that. God gets the credit. And when you pray in thanksgiving, it helps to maintain that posture in our lives. The second thing that will happen is that when you pray in thanksgiving, you'll be humbled. You'll be grounded. Because you can't really at the same time, be giving thanks to God and be full of yourself and be entitled. Thanking God and entitlement don't really go together, right? We can definitely act entitled sometimes, but it's not concurrently with when we're giving thanks to the Lord. And that kind of posture, that thankful prayer, that attitude, we've talked about this of he must increase, I must decrease. You remember that, John 3? Yes, good, That doesn't guarantee a miracle, but that positions us to see God move in our lives. You might remember the verse, God opposes the proud. If you're proud, acting pridefully, God is not going to bless that. He's not going to honor that. He's not going to crack open the windows of heaven to pour out blessing on you when you're prideful. He'll oppose you in that, but he gives grace to the humble. He will move on behalf of the humble. So this theme of praying and thanksgiving is super, super important, especially when you think of it in relation to the tests that we go through. How many of you, like you're not usually ready to thank God for the test you're in? Yet here it is. Doesn't mean you have to be thankful or, or happy about it, but you can be thankful that God is with you in it and that God loves you in it and that God is with you and for you in it. So if you need a miracle in your life, if you need some sort of shift, some sort of move of God, I can't guarantee it. But this could be a good place for you to start. Give thanks to God. Let's not be a people who just say, God, you do the miracle for me and then I'll give you thanks. I mean, that's okay. Like, should we thank God when he does good things in our lives? Yes, But let's go on the offensive. Let's be proactive and say, God, no matter what happens here, I'm gonna give you thanks. That's a big difference in our attitude right there, right? God, whether or not I see the miracle that I think that I need or that I want, I'm gonna give you thanks anyway. Listen, when we really sink our teeth into that, the situation may or may not go the way you want it to go. The test may not work out the way you think it should work out, but I guarantee you, we will get closer to God. You will see God's faithfulness. You will see his hand in it. Your character will be developed. God will work it for your good. 
you will be reminded that God is still good and powerful and for you and able and that he loves you. And that in and of itself, when we can rise above our tests, when we can rise above our situations and scenarios in this life and maintain a posture of thanks and trust in God, that in itself is a miracle, friends. And that is something that the rest of the world does not have and cannot do. And that will make them notice something about us. Hey, we've all heard this. Your life looks like it's crumbling around you. Your life's a dumpster fire, whatever it is. But why are you so, I don't even know, not happy, but like joyful, right? We've all heard that. That's what this can produce in us. God is a God of miracles, you can clearly see in here, like don't miss it. The, the, the little bit that was given to Jesus, he turns into an abundance. He'll do that in your life too, even if it seems like not very much at all. The question is not how much am I giving to the Lord? The question is, are you giving him everything that you do have? It's not the amount, it's your heart. And I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about yourself. Will you trust in God? Will you say, I don't know how this is gonna work out, but I trust that you can do a miracle. You will provide, you will get me through in this situation. Here I am, here's all of me, even if it's not very much. Just landing somewhere today, friends. That's the miracle. That leads us to the fourth act here. We'll start wrapping this up. I'm starting to get sweaty, so. The last two verses in this text This is the response. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That reference to the prophet in John 6, 14, that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet. He says, from among you, one who is like you, you're gonna listen to him, you're gonna honor him. That's ultimately talking about Jesus. And these people recognize him for who he is. Like like they're right in that, in verse 14. So I guess the question there, don't answer out loud. The question is, are you recognizing Jesus for who he really is in your life? Are you regarding him? Are you honoring him? Are you worshiping him? Are you regarding him? It looks like they answer rightly in verse 14, but when you bring verse 15 into it, you can actually see that they didn't respond correctly. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's a very interesting verse. Because even though these people recognized Jesus for who he was, they recognized him as someone important and significant and influential. We ought to like pay attention to this guy. They said, we're gonna take him and bend him to our wishes. We're gonna take him and bend him to our will. We wanna make him king. We wanna make this happen. Let's go. Was that Jesus' will? No. No. That is not the way to approach God, friends. What God does not want from us is to acknowledge, yes, okay, God, yeah, you're strong, you're powerful, you're the the Lord, that's awesome, awesome, now come and do what I want. But that's the attitude that we take on sometimes, isn't it? Guilty, right here, but that's the wrong approach. That is not the way to come near to God. And Jesus 
when he's approached that way, it says he what? It says he, Jesus, withdrew. He withdrew. It's not that he'll leave us or forsake us. It's not talking about stuff like that, but listen to me. There are places in our lives where we'll try to bend Jesus to fit to our will, try to take Jesus to certain places, try to bring him into certain areas, maybe to to justify certain behaviors we have or sins that we're into. And there are places that Jesus will not go in your life. You can't force him into some space he doesn't want to be in in your life. Again, not for out loud answering. What in your life are you trying to take Jesus and bend him to your wishes, bend him to your will, try to get him to conform to your program. That's the wrong attitude, friends. The right attitude is to flip that script around rather than God, come and do this thing for me. It's God, here I am and do with me what you will. That's what these guys missed. They miss it. Sometimes we miss it. So if I could just sum this whole message up, It would be to say this. Remember from earlier, Jesus is central. Say that again. Jesus is central. Let's say it again with some gusto. Jesus is central. Yes. So that means it's not about you. It's not about being comfortable. It's not about you getting your way. It's not about you being on the throne. It's about him. It's about our strong, faithful, miracle-working God who can do anything. It's about us humbling ourselves before him and trusting him through all of the ups and downs in our lives, through all of the trials and the tests, through all of those situations, good or bad. The question today is this, how will you respond? 